0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. We're going to turn to Philippians 4, chapter or, uh, verse 8. Philippians 4, verse 8 is our text for the sermon tonight. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Philippians 4, eight. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that even now we would allow our minds to dwell on these good and lovely things from your word. Father, we pray that you would help us to take our thoughts captive. And that taking them captive, they would be set upon you and set upon things above. And that you would bless all of our thoughts and meditations. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So the topic tonight is Christian meditation, and Christian meditation is one of those parts of of what I would call our spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines, personal practices of pursuing the Lord, how we grow in the Lord. The daily practice of the Christian, you know, should be these things. It should be prayer. It should be personal prayer. It should be family prayer. But you should pray certainly in your prayer closet alone with the Lord. You should read scripture each day as much as you can. You should do family worship, family devotions, usually coupled with a meal. Or if you want to be like Jonathan Edwards, you can get them up at O Dark Hundred in the morning and do them then. But at some point, the family should be together thinking about the Lord and looking at His Word and praising Him. And then, then, there's, then there's meditation, which perhaps is a part of prayer. But I want to I pull it out and look at meditation on its own. So if you're doing those things, prayer, Scripture reading, family devotions, meditation then you're doing well. If you're doing all those things every day, then you're doing well, and it's likely that if you do those things every day joyfully that you're a spiritually minded person. That what is arising up from within you is the work of the Spirit. If you're not doing those things, well, the implication would be different, right? That you're hearts are set on something else and you're giving your time to those things. There's something you find maybe more delightful or more immediate than pursuing God in prayer and scripture reading and meditation. And so examine yourself in that. And if you're not doing well, then let's do better. And so that's the purpose of this sermon is to stir us up to do better at least in one area. Now Christian meditation... I don't even like to use the word meditation, right? Because there's so much baggage that goes along with, with meditation. In fact, I think that's why it's not often promoted or practiced in the church today is simply because of that, that baggage. Um, meditation has been popularized by Buddhist-leaning, famous people, right? And that kind of meditation is not Christian meditation. That kind of meditation is pagan, LeBron James has a mindfulness app called Calm, right? Did we know that? Man, there were commercials on it on sports radio. Yeah, LeBron James is, is the mindfulness guru of the NBA. But that's Zen, right? That's Zen, and, and what it calls for is really uh, very different than what Christian meditation is. Christian meditation has an object in God Almighty, that's what we set our minds on. We set on some, our minds on something objective. Buddhist or Zen or whatever kind of meditation is really self-referential. It's, it's setting your mind on yourself or it's a lack of, of um, it's an emptying of the mind. But um, that is not, that is most definitely not what uh, I'm exhorting you today. I don't want you to become one with the universe by removing your mind from the immediate and and getting into some sort of state of being. Um, I very much want you to stay yourself and set your mind on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Christian meditation. It has a single object in the triune God. The BBC I don't know why they're an expert on Buddhism, but the BBC says that meditation is, quote, a way of taking control of the mind so that it becomes peaceful and focused and the meditator becomes more aware. The purpose of meditation is to stop the mind rushing about in an aimless or even a purposeful stream of thoughts. People often say that the aim of meditation is to still the mind. That's the aim of meditation, simply to still the mind. In other words, it's self-referential, right? It's just about uh, stopping the thoughts. All of that, we would say, is just like preparation to get to meditation. You want to stop thinking about certain things and put your mind on other things, right? So even they're they're like uh, not even in the entryway of meditation uh, when it comes to what we're talking about. And so perhaps we shouldn't use the word meditation because of the baggage. There are alternatives, right? Um, how about this: thinking about God and His glory. I like that. Thinking about God and His glory, putting the mind on Him, pondering His excellence. The um, John Owen called it spiritual mindedness, right? Having a mind that's set on the things of the spirit. In Philippians 4.8, the verb translated dwell on these things. You notice that the last part of the the verse we're looking at, dwell on these things, is what the New American Standard has. If you're looking at a different version, it probably has something else there. It's logizomai, that's the verb there. It's from the root logos, in the sense of, of an account or reckoning, but you recognize that word logos as the word, right? And so... This word has some connection to that. Christian meditation is not practiced in the church today. Also, I think another reason we don't practice it is we're too busy. We're all very busy. Uh, We needn't be, but but we keep ourselves busy. We hustle from one thing to the next, finding extra minutes simply to squeeze in our Bible reading and our prayer. So the idea of giving time to stopping and thinking about what we've read in the scripture is there's a competition for that time with a thousand things on your to-do list. And so we we um, we think it's we think to stop and think about what we've read and set our minds on it and pause is actually imprudent and unreasonable because we we have actions to take, as if meditating on the Lord is not some sort of action. Uh, another reason we don't meditate is technology. Technology. It is doing us a disservice by dictating to us, it's, it, not only is it constantly interrupting us, but it's dictating to us what we should be thinking about. Right? It is telling us all the time what to set our minds on. You know, you get a notification for a half-price blast at Sonic. Boom, it's there. What's your mind on? It's on that tasty ice cream, right? And, and so we're constantly getting this. Our phones, our televisions, our iPads, computers incessantly shouting to us what we should think about. Our Facebook feed gives us some wonderful and useful information, but it also forces our minds to ponder the things of this world rather than the things above, Uh, In his book, uh, there's a book called From the Garden to the City, The Redeeming and Corrupting Power of Technology. John Dyer paints a picture of the newness of the world we live in today. Listen to this. He writes, Because of all this technology, our world has changed so drastically over the last 50 years that the biblical character of Abraham of 2000 BC would probably have more in common with Abraham Lincoln of the early 1800s than Lincoln would have with us in the 21st century. Though Abraham and Abe are separated by some 3,800 years and several important technological advances, our 16th president would likely find our world more incomprehensible than that of ancient Ur. Abraham's father raised cattle and Mr. Lincoln planted pumpkins. By contrast, most of us spend the majority of our time indoors, working at desks with little knowledge of the natural world. Both men attended small religious gatherings with people they knew well from the surrounding area. We drive several miles to sit in huge auditoriums and watch a screen with thousands of people, many of whom are strangers. They lived in small, one-bedroom dwellings lit by candles. We live in comparatively enormous homes equipped with electricity, phone, cable, internet, They wrote letters and spoke in person. We write electronically and speak through devices. They weathered the seasons. We control the weather with air conditioning. Praise God. (laughs) We could go on making various comparisons, but the point is that our world is so uniformly technological that even in an ethically and religiously diverse community, like my neighborhood, he writes, the day-to-day activities of my neighbors probably have more in common with one another than with the founders of our country. Technology has become a kind of supra-cultural phenomenon that, that finds its way into every aspect of our diverse lives. So technology, in other words, is radically changing the way we live, often for the better. Often for the better. I'm very thankful for medical Uh, advances, for example. But not always is it for the better. One of the effects of technology in my life has been the diminishment of time to think my own thoughts. I am constantly being told what to think. I I don't give as much time to allow my mind to dwell on God's Word and His nature and glory. Uh, There's one uh, there's one particular part of our modern technology that has done it more than anything else, and, and it's the, the, what you have in your pocket. It's phones and push notifications. Right, those little pop-ups and beeps and reminders have radically altered the way we live. There is no denying that. I don't think anybody here would. They force our thoughts in certain directions. They demand attention, and... Um, And it seems like, it seems like we would be able to ignore them more and more. But that's not really how it's worked out. It seems we give them more and more of our attention. They are a friend that can always interrupt. How many times are you sitting around a table with people you haven't seen and somebody's looking at their phone, right? You're having conversations and somebody dives into their phones. Um. Uh, <clears throat> or or you're, you're more concerned about people who aren't with you than people that you're with, right? You'd rather know that somebody has liked the post that you made, some provocative post on social media, than you would know what the person right before you thinks about what you've written. Um, recent example, I went up to, you probably, you may have seen the pictures on, on Facebook. Uh, I went up to Craggy Gardens. I was there to pray and meditate. God's glorious creation was shouting his praises, leading, uh, you know, it was just in-your-face glorious beauty. So what did I do? I, I had to take pictures so that people knew that I had been there and so that they could ooh and ah over the pictures and they could respond. And of course, then for the rest of the morning, my phone's buzzing in my pocket. Right? demanding my attention. And so I gave very little time while I was up there to, uh, to God and to thinking upon Him. I was shackled to my phone. It was a blessed time, but it was a divided time. It seems like our time is always divided. Right? It's, it's, never, it's never singularly focused on what it should be focused on. And our, our cell phones have done us that disservice. You know, hopefully in in coming years, I don't know. There needs to be like a Christian movement against technology. There needs to be a return to some sort of asceticism. Or we need to apply fasting to technology as a spiritual discipline. And say, we're going to go back to the 1990s Today. And you won't be able to get in touch with me because I'm not going to take my phone. And we'll just have to trust that we're still alive. And we haven't texted one another in over 15 minutes. But we carry these things around in our pockets and it divides our minds, it distracts our minds, diverts our attention. Um, I mean, honestly, a lot of things did that. When you had children your thoughts got really divided as well. Right? And we can't, we can't really fast from our children as much as we would like to at times. Right? Um, and so, with responsibility, become, there's just a division of our, our, our thoughts. Right? There's many things we have to give our time to. And time for sitting still and pondering diminishes. But... We can't, we can't just not do this. The command of the Holy Spirit in Philippians is still the command of the Holy Spirit. right? Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on, consider, think on, put your mind on, ponder these things telling us to ponder these things, to roll them over in our heads, to think about them. So God does give us work to do. He gives us things to do. He gives us children to teach and raise and a host of other things that demand the attention of our minds, our, our, our pondering thoughts, but these things may not occupy our minds to the exclusion of thinking about God himself and his glory. There are days aren't there, where you haven't set your mind in in any serious sort of way on God. And how scandalous is that? Think of how terrible that is, given what God has done for us, that he made us, that he redeemed us by the blood of his son. And there are days, maybe weeks, months where we don't seriously give our minds over to thinking about God. And that should not be In his book, The Grace and Duty of Being Spiritually Minded, John Owen gives us a definition of meditation that um, I'll get to that in a second. But in the preface of that book, his, I I believe it was his successor, Thomas Chalmers, is that right? Is he the guy who, I don't know, maybe it wasn't, but um, I'm looking at Renton. You know everything about John Owen, right? Didn't you write it? No. Um, maybe Thomas Chalmers was just a pastor of a different time period, but in the preface of that book, he wrote this. John Owen wrote this book at a time when he was unable to do anything for the edification of others and did not expect to be able to return to his work as a preacher of the gospel. So this is later in his life. He wrote it because he was concerned at the great efforts, get this, the world makes to draw the mind and hearts of men away from God in spiritual things. If the world can fill the minds, thoughts, and hearts of men with itself, it will greatly strengthen its hold on the soul. Let me say that again. If the world can fill the minds, thoughts, and hearts of men with itself, it will greatly strengthen its hold on the soul, preventing it being overcome by faith and obedience. In others, it will greatly weaken all grace and bring the soul into the danger of being eternally ruined." For if we love the world, the love of the Father is not in us. And when the world fills our thoughts, it will drag our hearts away from God. And we have little portals into the world that we constantly give our attention to. Right? How scandalized would Thomas Chalmers be? Right? Your brain can get addicted to vines and TikTok, and memes, and all the godless drivel that is out there. Your mind can get addicted to it. And being addicted to it, it forces out thoughts of God. Because thinking about God engages the whole being. It takes some effort, but enjoying, you know, some stupid trick or prank that somebody plays on somebody else, in the 30-second window, you get to watch it. It's sort of some immediate you know, dopamine. And we can actually become addicted to that just as our body can get accustomed to junk food. We crave that sodium of junk food, right? And so, snap out of this. Realize that what you set your minds on is what you're feeding on. And if it's TikTok, you're eating Mountain Dew and Oreos. For your nourishment. On occasion, Mountain Dew and Oreos sounds kind of good. But it sounds terrible for breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day. Another thing that distracts us from giving our thoughts to God is the lukewarmness of our faith. When we leave our first love, like that church in Ephesus described in the second chapter of Revelation, our thoughts of Him diminish, grow less and less zealous. That which we love the most will undoubtedly have the most of the thoughts of our mind. If Jesus Christ is not your first love, your thoughts will seldom settle on His glory and His kingdom. What is, um, <clears throat> what is it that you roll over in your mind? Is it lustful thoughts? Is it your husband or your wife? Is it what people think about you? Is it your friends? Is it money, vacations? Is it uh, sales, cars, f- food? Is it vengeance that occupies your thoughts? Is it jealousy, envy? Is it discontentment? Do you just is your, Are your thoughts like a string of grumbling and complaining? You know, why, why this again? Why are my ankles hurting again? Why this? Why that? You know? Why does this food not taste as good as I wanted? Food, what, 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 what? all these things. That which you love most will occupy most of your thoughts, and if you love yourself most, then you will think uh, think about the things that make you discontent in your flesh. If you've ever been in love, you know what, that what I'm saying here is true. Can I say that? Is that too mushy? Right. When you're in love, all you can think about is the object of your affection, right? Hopefully you can work the Lord Jesus Christ into your thoughts. But when you're in love, you want to think about the one who is lovely, right? Um, If you examine yourself, what is it that your mind dwells on? What is it that you ponder? Are there ruts in your brain that are dug so deep there because you just keep going down the same path in your thoughts? Is it God the Father? Is it God the Son? Is it God the Holy Spirit? Is it God's glory? Is it their wonderful glory that occupies your thoughts? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, Scripture says. I'm going to share it again, and you guys are going to get sick of me sharing this, but Jonathan Edwards knew how to set his mind on the Lord. Jonathan Edwards went for walks and for the purpose of meditation. You should go on walks, too, for the purpose of meditation. Not for exercise, not because you're 20 pounds fatter than you want to be, but to put your mind on God. Right? That's why you should go on a walk. Get away from everything else. Leave your cell phone behind and go on that walk. Um, here's, Jonathan Edwards didn't just love God, he enjoyed God. In loving God, he loved to think about him and meditate on him, God and his glory. He speaks this way about his conversion and subsequent faith. The first instance that I remember of that sort of inward sweet delight in God. Now let me just stop there. Do you have an inward sweet delight in God? Have you ever had an inward sweet delight in God? Somewhat like that feeling of being in love, but but even more cosmic, even greater, more grandeur than that, contemplating the creator of all things. An inward sweet delight. He says, the first instance that I remembered that I remember of that sort of inward sweet delight in God and divine things that I have lived much in since, was on reading those words, 1 Timothy 1.17, Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. As I read the words, there came into my soul and was, as it were, diffused through it a sense of the glory of the divine being. A new sense quite different from anything I ever experienced before. Never any words of Scripture seemed to me as these words did. I thought within myself how excellent a being was, that was and how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God and be wrapped up to Him in heaven and be, as it were, swallowed up in Him forever. I kept saying, and as it... and as it were, singing over these words of Scripture to myself and went to pray to God that I might enjoy Him and prayed in a manner quite different from what I used to do with a new sort of affection. But it never came into my thought that there was anything spiritual or of a saving nature in this. which is mind-boggling. From about that time, I began to have a new kind of apprehension and idea of Christ, and the work of redemption and the glorious way of salvation by him. An inward sweet sense of these things at times came into my heart. And my soul was led away in pleasant views and contemplations of them. And, in, and my mind was greatly engaged to spend my time in reading and meditating on Christ, on the beauty and excellency of his person, and the lovely way of salvation by free grace in him. I found no book, no book so delightful to me as those that treated of these subjects. Those words in Canticles 2.1 used to be abundantly with me, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. The words seemed to me sweetly to represent the loveliness and beauty of Jesus Christ, The whole book of canticles used to be pleasant to me, and I used to be much in reading it about that time, and found from time to time an inward sweetness, there he is again, third time he said that, that would carry me away in my contemplations. This I know not how to express otherwise than by a calm, sweet abstraction of soul from the concerns of the world. And sometimes of a kind of vision or fixed ideas and imaginations of being alone in the mountains or some solitary wilderness far from all mankind, sweetly talking with Christ and wrapped and swallowed up in God. The sense I had of divine things would often of a sudden kindle up as it were a sweet burning in my heart, an ardor of soul that I know not how to express." I know if, you've been, if you have the Spirit living in you, you know exactly what Jonathan Edwards is talking about. You know exactly what he means. You've had that warmth of heart. You've had that, that, that feeling that, you, that, that exists nowhere else for God himself. Edward's delighted in thinking about God and his greatness, and that's my hope for us too. I want us to be a church that delights in contemplating God, contemplating his glory and his costly grace. We have to be people who turn off the push notifications, right, that goes for walks and prays and meditates on the glory of God. I want our worship to cause this kind of contemplation. Right? And so, this would be us just living according to our catechism. Right? That first question of the catechism, what is it, children? What's the question? Not you, Mary. I said children. (laughs) Esther, what is it? Yeah, what's the chief end of man? And the answer is... to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To enjoy Him. I want us to be filled with all the fullness of Jesus Christ, and I pray that God would be gracious to us and through His sanctifying grace, give to us a depth of love for Him that causes us to simply want to worship, to simply want to set our minds on His glory, Right to, to stop striving to, to Pull yourself away from your work and just set your mind on things above to think on His glory. To enjoy God means so many things, right? It, it means enjoying the fruit of your labors, right? It, it, means it, it means loving His creation, but it certainly means actually enjoying His presence by the Holy Spirit at work within us as we contemplate him, as we set our minds on him, as we think about our beloved. I, I did far more of this kind of meditating early in my Christian walk. I love to go out by myself, usually taking along with me one of those Puritan paperbacks, right? So helpful in drawing my thoughts to God through Scripture. Um... And, and I would go and think about and enjoy God. I would go somewhere beautiful because looking on God's creation helped, and it will help you because it's preaching to Him, I mean to you about Him. God's glory is there. The heavens are the telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. And so get there where, where creation is shouting His praises at you and maybe you'll follow suit in your own mind to shout your own praises to him. When was the last time you got by yourself, turned off your phone, and with the help of general and special revelation, gave your thoughts over to dwelling on God himself and the glory of his throne room in heaven? This This is a form of prayer, but it is just mulling over in your thoughts what you know about him from his word. It's taking one chunk of his word and just thinking through the implications of it and then rejoicing in it and praising him for it and, and then singing songs to him based upon that. Um, if you've never done that, you, you're like a man who would be happy having a robot for a wife. Right? She's, she's not very pretty, she's not very affectionate, she's not very alive but she sure gets done what I ask her to get done around the house. Um, if you have no affection for God, no desire to spend time contemplating His glory, no enjoyment of Him as the one true living God, you're treating Him as your basically your salvation bot. He just gives you a ticket out of hell. And you have no affection for Him. It's, it's your salvation bot. John Owen said... Uh, this do we love God because we see a glory a beauty a loveliness and the glorious attributes of his nature have we bothered to find out what those attributes are do we always rejoice when we remember that he is holy is it our great joy and satisfaction that God is what he is Do we love him for the glorious revelation he has made of himself in all of his holy excellencies in Christ? Do we love him because he communicates himself to us and by Christ? If we do love God for the above reasons, then our love has come from a renewed heart. But if we say we love God but do not know why, or because we feel it's just the right thing to say, or because we think it is wicked not to love God, Well, then we have no evidence that our hearts have been renewed by grace. A renewed heart, he says, loves spiritual things because God is in them. It loves God for himself and not for what he does for us. It's hard for us to snap out of, I mean, we're Americans, and so what have you done for me lately? That's our attitude to everything. What have you done for me? Right? The victim today has the most status and has to be catered to. And they're just constantly saying, how, how will you serve me? Right? And so that's, 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 the, that's our mindset. And, and so we, we even put God in that category. What has he done for us? And we don't even stop to think about the fact that he is God. He is glorious, He is holy, He is righteous, He is lovely, He he deserves all of our thoughts. He deserves every one of our contemplations, even before we get to the fact that He has redeemed us by the blood of His Son. He in Himself is God. It's precisely at that point that Christian meditation comes in. There is no such thing as a loveless marriage between Christ and his bride. And if you are united to Christ, the love will be present and the desire to know, to pray to, to meditate on the glory of God, it will be present. We desire to be Christians rather than theoretical Christians. Right? We are called to love God and not simply acknowledge that he exists. The, the agnostics the deists the theists do that we should want to approach god as if he were as if he were a person not as if he were a, a legal construct or a a dutch uncle or just an uncle we we want to be like faithful and hopeful and Christian in the pilgrim's progress, and not like ignorant who who made it to the very gates of heaven, but had no true knowledge or love of the ruler of celestial city. Made it right to the gates, but not in. It was all theory, and it was bad theory at that. One of the glories of the Christian life is that the mind has been changed. We we were unregenerate, and here's what we thought about as stated in Genesis 6-5. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We were like the tossing seas whose waters toss up refuse and mud. Right? And this, the wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance, does not seek God. All of his thoughts are there is no God. But when the Spirit of God regenerates a wicked heart, what What promise does that man receive concerning his thoughts? Here it is. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. And this. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. So, now, getting toward the end here, let me give you a definition of Christian meditation to help you distinguish it in your thoughts from prayer. This definition is stolen from John Owen. Here's what he says. By disciplined meditation, I mean the art of thinking of some chosen spiritual subject in an orderly, disciplined way. The purpose of this sort of meditation is to rouse the heart and soul to feel the goodness or badness of the subject being thought through. So discipline meditation is different from Bible study in which the chief aim is to learn the truth and declare it to others. It's also different from prayer for prayer is directed to God. The aim of discipline meditation is to arouse our hearts to experience a sense of love and delight and humility. That's the difference. Now, um, Let me read that definition one more time. By disciplined meditation, I mean the art of thinking of some chosen subject, spiritual subject, in an orderly, disciplined way. The purpose of this sort of meditation is to rouse the heart and soul to feel the goodness or badness of the subject being thought of. And why does he say badness there? Because he says you should contemplate hell. It's good for you. Contemplate separation from God's benevolence. And that badness will sink into your soul and will make you tremble and love God for his mercy, right? But notice also he says that it's to set your mind on things in an orderly, disciplined way, right? This is not just let your thoughts go and travel to the inner cosmic world of your brain. Because pretty soon it's going to be like a Ren and Stumpy cartoon, Right? You just don't want to do that. What you need to do is input the word of God and let that dictate your meditations. That's where the order comes from. We don't think upon God and make up things about God. We think upon God as he's revealed to us in the word. That's why it's an orderly, disciplined meditation. It's fixed on God's word. You don't get to make stuff up. Um... Now, I'm going to come back to this the next time we do uh, an evening worship service. Um, And we'll, we'll go into this further, but I pray that God grants us a delight in Him. That we, each of us, young, old, you children here, take time throughout each day to set your minds on God, to think about Him. Think about what it is has been said in his word. And let your mind delight in that thing. Here's an example of Christian meditation. I'll end with this. And, and the, the scriptures are filled with examples of Christian meditation. Just go to the Psalms. Every one of those is a, is a meditation on God. Here's one of those Psalms, a Psalm of David, a Psalm of praise of David, Psalm 145. I will extol you, my God, O King, And I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you. And I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts and I will tell of your greatness They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious, and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. So now in the coming weeks, take David's psalm and make it the basis for your own thoughts. Put this word in your mind and let it draw your thoughts out to God, to him who is all the glories that are mentioned in the passage we began with in Philippians 4.8. True, honorable, right, pure, lovely, good repute, excellent, worthy of praise. So set your minds on God, Let your minds dwell on him. Let's pray. Almighty God, we ask for your forgiveness. Forgiveness for minds that are filled with drivel. Filled with distractions. Taken away to be set upon the things of the world. And Father, though we love you, our love is conflicted because... We think so little about you and your glory. So, Father, I pray that you would, you would forgive us. Forgive us for not loving you with all of our minds. Forgive us for allowing ourselves to be distracted. I pray that you would give us, by your Spirit, the self-discipline. Father, to arise early to stay up late, to, during the lunch break, give our thoughts over to you. And Father, I pray that in that we would find peace, that we would find satisfaction in you, and that we would stop trying to find satisfaction in this world. Help us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.